on Barney Miller, there was a Hispanic uh, detective. And at some point, somebody said something about, you know, when are your people going to move to our side of town? And he's, he mentioned revolution. And yeah, that's what we get. We got ready to, what's our, what's our economic policy to help out, you know, the, the oppressed people in Latin America? It's called revolution. And so it's not really, you know, economics, uh, although perhaps it should be. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. economics tends to focus on the trade balance as the key to understanding exchange rates. All right? uh, they, they emphasize that that's the main force, and, and it's not. But what if it is? If it is, the U.S. has a trade deficit with respect to China. So therefore, we are buying more you know, Chinese yuan than they are buying of dollars. So therefore, their currency appreciates relative to ours until the trade deficit goes away. All right? So you know, the, what they end up focusing on is that, well, don't worry, it, it'll, you'll tend towards balanced trade. Don't worry, Brazil. If you just let the market decide, then um, what is it? The real, I think, of Brazilian currency. Uh, if there, if you have a trade deficit, well, then that means no one wants your currency. Relatively speaking, um, you're obviously exporting something, and everyone wants, let's say, the dollar. Well, then the dollar will appreciate relative to your currency, and then that will eventually cause the trade trade to be balanced. So, so they don't even worry about it at all because they figure you know well if you leave the market alone then it will generate balanced trade and we don't have the problem of potentially our trade deficit meaning that we don't have full employment because it's draining away demand from our own economy so that's kind of the direction i would go with all that is not so much the savings part of it as i think about their explanation of the exchange rate just like their explanation of the domestic macro economy it ends up assuming away uh, what's in the real world a huge problem so that's you know kind of the way i would go with that right so th- they're viewing i'm sorry they're they're viewing a trade deficit as evidence of some sort of improper uh, manipulation of the market 
Yeah, or, or that the market hasn't had time to fix it yet. That, but yeah, sometimes there's an improper manipulation like those uh, Southeast Asian countries that are buying up dollars in order to drive down their currency to generate a trade surplus. Or uh, a trade deficit for the U.S. is an indication that the dollar is overvalued. All right. And so it should depreciate. And if it doesn't, then somebody must be manipulating the currency. That's right. Yeah. And, and you would say that, that those assumptions about what a deficit evidences are, are, are incorrect. That is exactly right. The currency market is driven by financial capital flows. It's not driven by trade flows. Trade flows are... At worst, about 1.5% of global currency trade. And even if we take into account the fact that each transaction that I undertake to do an import or an export may, may generate other transactions to cover that previous transaction, let's multiply it by 10. At best, trade flows are 15% of all currency trade. So I wonder what the other 85% is. Wouldn't that be logically where we would want to focus our attention on the other 85%? which is financial capital flows, that the reason that the dollar skyrocketed in the early 1980s was because the U.S. interest rate was sky high, which made buying dollars a really good deal relative to the rest of the world. You earn so much interest on a treasury bill, even something as, you know, as safe as a treasury bill. And the U.S. stock market was doing well. You know, so all these things were contributing to people wanted to buy U.S. dollars in order to buy U.S. financial assets. And that created a huge trade deficit but yeah, that's because trade is secondary, you know, tertiary. Uh, it, it, it's, it's minor. Could it be the case that even though the financial transactions are larger in number, they are still a derivative of the goods and services transactions? Yes. And that's why I was giving them, uh, you know, because technically it's about 1.5% of all currency trade is, well, the size of, of world trade is about 1.5% of the size of the currency market. But, okay, let's say that there's an additional transaction. Let's say that there's, you know, uh, and let's say there's 10 additional transactions for every single transaction that took place just for an import or export reason. That still only brings us to 15%. I mean, it would have to be an unbelievable number of transactions related to trade flows that then call you know, or rather let's put it this way for every transaction that takes place because i want to i want to import something there would have to be 30 covering transactions and that's just not true i mean I, nobody argues that it may be three or four but you know to, to err on the side of caution i always say well let's say it's 10. if it's 10 transactions to cover every you know trade transactions we're still only up to to international trade is 15 percent of all currency market activity. So it's financial capital flows. Uh, you remember when the, when the Russians raised their domestic interest rate from 10 to 20%, that was specifically to address part of the problem of the falling uh, ruble. Because uh, now people are like, mm -hmm. well, let's see, you know, it, they're in the middle of a war, everybody hates them, but 20% interest, you know, maybe this is worth the risk. And, and so you know, it's the financial capital flows that dominate the currency market. and. I, I've given a couple of talks on this. It, it, I feel like a liar when I tell people what the mainstream theories of exchange rates are because people must be thinking to themselves, but that can't be right. I mean, nobody would think that. And they do. So it's, it's bizarre that every once in a while, a mainstream economist will mention, you know, maybe we should take more account of the financial flows. 
but then they don't because it doesn't fit the overall theme of the, the, all these factors in the economy are self-correcting. For example, trade imbalances. Don't worry, it'll fix itself. All right. I guess that's what I meant when I said that the financial flows can be a, a derivative of the real goods and services flow. It sort of harkens back to what we were saying about like, what if the RAND was really strong and then a hurricane mm. destroyed South Africa? You know, then we would expect the RAND to plummet. I guess what, I, what I'm saying is that I think it, it's very much true that within a given range, let's say 80 to a hundred dollars per rand or whatever, you know, whatever the trade is, I think it's like 12 or something. Yeah. You know, I think financial flows are explaining probably 95% of the difference between the rand trading at, you know, eight versus $12 right. per rand. Yeah. But it seems like underneath that, the ability to actually buy things in rand must have something to do with the reason why it's not fluctuating between zero and four as opposed to eight yeah. and 12. Yeah, that's possible. Um, but the problem is that the financial market moves so quickly. So for, for example, when the peso fell by 40%, you know, and I think it was two weeks, were things in Mexico really 40% less valuable than they were before? Or had they been overvalued by 40% in terms of the actual goods and services? And even neoclassical economists say that there is way too much currency volatility to be explained by underlying trade relations. And they just end up saying that their solution is, well, but in the long run, that doesn't count for anything. In the long run, it's white noise. And, and the post-Keynesian view is the long run is a series of short runs. If, the, if Mexico experienced a financial crisis in 1994, that forever affected the um, you know, path because life is path dependent. That forever affected the path that Mexico was going to follow from then on. Uh, and it's that famous quote from Keynes where he says, in the long run, we're all dead. Because he said that, uh, you know, back during the Great Depression, he was frustrated that economists were saying, well, but in the long run, the unemployment will go away. He's like, yeah, but that's like telling this uh, captain of a, of a ship during a storm, don't worry, when the, when the storm's over, the ocean will again be flat. We might be under the ocean by then. And so, you know, if we can't explain the short run, then we are, as Keynes said, setting for ourselves too useless, too petty a task or something like that by saying, we're only going to explain the long run. And in fact, you're not even really doing that, but you're setting for yourself a very useless task. So I think you have to be able to explain the short run flows because they affect the long run flows, if that makes sense. So what, what happened in, in Mexico in the 90s? I, I'm not as familiar with that particular crisis. Yeah, oh, it's very interesting. Um, Oh, I think so. Anyway, because uh, it's something I go over with my class. Uh, in fact, it was kind of funny. Okay, so my book is called um, "Currencies, Capital Flows, and Crises: A Post-Keynesian Approach to Exchange Rate Determination," something like that. And it's like 2008, so it really needs to be updated. But originally, I was just going to call it a post-Keynesian approach to exchange rate determination. And Melanie, who is a much better capitalist than I am said, that's a lousy title. No one wants to buy a post-Keynesian approach to exchange rate determination. I said, mm -hmm. all right. So I went back and tried to think about it. And I thought, well, and I, and I presented her with the currencies, capital flows, and crises. You know, I like that. Got the alliteration, I like that. The drawback was I had nothing in the book about crises because uh, I, I used it in the title to create the alliteration, but mm -hmm. I actually hadn't covered it because I was tired. I, and, and that was when I was, um, I was trying to finish this book and the current department chair had said, I can't do this anymore. Will you please take over as department chair? Which if you know, people are unaware of how this works, no one wants to be department chair. Why did I get a PhD? Research 
and teaching. What do I get to do less of as department chair? Research and teaching. Mm -hmm. So I had to rush the end of the book. And so I was going, okay, we'll just do currencies. So because of Melanie, it's entirely her fault. There's now a section. I had to sit there and think, okay, what do I think about crises? And I had to put together a section. And I actually really like what I came up with in the end. Uh, So I'm glad I was forced to do it. But there's two crises covered in the book. One of them is Mexico and one of them is is, is Thailand, uh, the, the Asian financial crisis. And um, I guess the whole reason I brought that up was for years in class, though, I still skipped the crisis stuff. I just did the currency market stuff. I mentioned that one day in class and one of my Mexican students said, oh, I wish you did the crises. It's like, well, hell, now I feel guilty. So so now I teach the crisis stuff. And I have to tell you, I really enjoy getting to that. Part. After all my reluctance before, I really get uh, excited about it uh, and covering that section. So here's what happened in Mexico. They're being advised in the you know 80s and, and early 90s uh, what you need to do to, to develop is to free up your your markets liberalize you know let uh, uh, foreigners come in and invest uh, and get rid of all your regulations and so forth which of course is not what Brazil did in the earlier example I gave you but they said this is what will help you so they said okay uh, so they they freed up their financial market allowed foreign money to come in which they also viewed as an advantage over borrowing money from the World Bank because they say hey we don't pay any interest for this and there's no strings attached, when in fact, there are many, many strings attached to money that foreigners invest in your country, because they can take all the money out overnight, which is what they did. So anyway, Mexico's currency price was fixed to the dollar. And the fact that their investment market was attracting so much American money was making it easy to hold the, the peso at that level. And if you break down the data, and I can't really do it so much right here, but if you break down the data and you start looking at it, there were many reasons to think in the 90s that there was no real underpinning to this. The the stock market is rising much faster than GDP growth, which was simply unsustainable. And uh, so much of the money that Mexicans had had borrowed was short term, which meant the interest rate could change very quickly, and in dollars, which meant you better be earning money in dollars, or if the peso collapses, you're screwed. And then there was the December mistake. And I always have to go back and, and reread this part for my lecture because I can never remember exactly right. But I believe it's the ink that either the outgoing or incoming president says, oh, don't worry, you know, we won't depreciate the currency. That's not going to happen, even though there were all these signals uh, that the market was saying or devalue rather, I should say, if it's the government doing it, we're not going to devalue the currency. And then they did not a lot, but they did. And so the market then took this as a signal that, Oh, my God. They also believe it's overvalued. Let's get the hell out. Um, and so all that money that had been invested there, they sold off all their investments. The, the peso collapsed. Yeah, the, uh, I have, I have my, my chart somewhere that I show my students, but, you know, GDP collapsed uh, and, and so on, which wasn't nearly as bad as what happened in Thailand, actually. And it wasn't good for Mexico, but, but in Thailand, it was even worse. Uh, well, and in Southeast Asia in general in 97, they said that a, a massive number, and I don't remember the statistics right now again, but a massive number of people were plunged into absolute poverty by the uh, collapses of their currencies because they were importing things like food. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, can you imagine? I think the Thai bot fell by 60%. Can you imagine suddenly having your household income affected by the fact that you're paying 60% more for food? So, and again, same thing in that case. They had been encouraged to free up your market, you know, and, and, and let all this money come in and that'll, that'll finance all these uh, investments. And for a while, they were the fastest growing economy on the planet. And then 
it, it was interesting in their economy. It wasn't so much the stock market as um, real estate. Real estate was being bid up to unbelievable levels uh, in in Thailand, and then one of the land title companies defaulted, and then everybody got the hell out. So interesting and, and uh, instructive and horrific stories. Sometimes I feel like a volcanologist, you know, studying volcanoes and being excited about a volcano that killed, you know, my God, what a eruption that was. 300,000 people were killed. Uh, and that's awful. But it's also yeah. fascinating because I want to figure out how do we not make it happen again? And so, you know, I, I get so excited about covering the lecture on Mexico and, and, and Thailand that actually it was a disaster uh, in terms of humanitarian, you know, for humanitarian reasons. Yeah. So to my understanding, Mexico's domestic economy in terms of like their industry is much more advanced today than it was in the 90s. And I guess the question I have is if they had that same level of advanced manufacturing, you know, what with Ford sending factories down into Mexico, that sort of thing, would it be possible that if there was sort of this mass market sort of hysteria where everyone said, sell your pesos, get out? that that's some amount of people would say, I know you think I should sell my pesos, but I can't because I have these long-term contracts with my Mexican counterparts and I need to sort of hang on to some of these pesos to fulfill my obligations. Right. No, that's exactly what um, Eileen Grable uh, goes on to, to you know recommend that you want to make these relationships long-term. If I'm going to allow this foreign money in, it can't be money that's going to leave overnight. Sure, you can invest in our country. Uh, we want the money, but you got to understand it's not helpful to us if it's money that's going to leave overnight. And we want these long-term investments there. Um, what example does she use in the book? Chile, I think, that they had, they weathered the financial crisis, the Mexican financial crisis, much better than the other Latin American countries because they had strict capital controls. And they said, if you're going to invest here, whether it's building a factory or just financially, We've got penalties for you know, moving the money out quickly. Uh, we've got um, you know, uh, different exchange rates for different activities. And does that lower the amount of money that comes in? Yeah, but the money comes in and stays in. Uh, you don't run the risk of it you know, suddenly leaving. So that's absolutely what is recommended from the post-Keynesian perspective in terms of doing it properly. Yeah. What, what's the name of, of Grable's book where she discusses that? You know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I've read a bunch of her articles. And so the book, when it came out, she did have a book come out, um, but I'd already read you know, most of it already. I mean, Grable, University of Denver, CV. Yeah, well, while you're looking, I, I just yes. want to say that it, it seems like what, you, what you're describing and what she's describing is sort of, I don't know if anyone else uses this terminology, but I like to refer to it as the distinction between hot money and cold money. Oh, exactly. Precisely. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Whereas uh, you can you can build quickly using a using a hot money approach, right? You know, but it's more unstable. Whereas if you use yeah. the cold money approach, then it would take longer to get to that point, but right. be less volatility and less possibility of a crash. Right, and and in fact, um, one of the things she talks about is the fact that. Many of these countries in the 80s and 90s thought, wow, this hot money coming in, you know, it, it doesn't have any restrictions. Like when the, when borrow money from the World Bank, they say, well, OK, you can borrow the money, but you have to do this, this and this. Well, but it has all kinds of restrictions uh, that this money that is coming from individual financial investors has all kinds of restrictions. Right. They just don't, you know, uh, 
that they just don't, you know, write them out on a sheet of paper and say this and sign this piece of paper. And, um, oh man, I had the page uh, exactly right. And then when I clicked, okay. So she has a 2014 book, and this is the one I was thinking of, Reclaiming Development, an alternative economic policy manual that she co-authored with Hajun uh, Chang. And then there's a more recent book that I haven't actually seen, uh, When Things Don't Fall Apart, Global Financial Governance and Developmental Finance in the Age of Productive Incoherence. So I should look that up because I hadn't even heard. That's 2017. Yeah. Because I'm I'm very interested in sort of how to apply some of these MMT and post-Keynesian sort of insights to the developmental economy. Um, right. And she's done some really, she had a, an article in the Cambridge Journal of Economics on talking about speed bumps and uh, tripwires as, you know, things to help the hot capital flows. Tripwires being uh, when so-and-so happens, uh, uh-oh, there might be a problem. For example, say the ratio of foreign lending uh, you know, or borrowing in foreign currency to domestic currency, when it hits a certain level, that should be an indicator to policymakers, oh, we might be approaching a, you know, a, a situation of, of um, danger. And then the speed bumps being anything that can slow down the capital flow going out. So she talks uh, really good empirical stuff. She talks about all that. That's great. Since, since we're talking about hot money, why don't we go back to sort of this discussion of, of Russian interest rates? So they increased their short-term interest rate to 20%. And the way NPR describes it was that any Russian who might have been tempted to sell their rubles to buy dollars or euros now has a big incentive to save that money instead, end quote. Um, Now, to me, this seems like a short-term fix because if someone wants dollars or euros, it's because they want to buy something that's priced in dollars or euros and they're viewing their rubles as a means to that end. And if they're viewing their rubles as pre-conversion dollars or pre-conversion euros, then to me, it seems like raising rates, raising the deposit rate is promising to give them even more dollars in euros for their initial ruble deposit. In other words, I, I don't see how raising deposit rates on the ruble will create a demand for the ruble that's, that's independent from one's desire to convert it into other currencies to get goods and services provided by the countries issuing those currencies. I, I think the demand, like the true ultimate demand comes from what a person can buy with the currency. So that was that was the setup. But the question is, yeah. how is this strategy meaningfully different from that of cryptocurrency issues who promise their holders unsustainably large returns? Famously, uh, Terra offered almost 20% returns on its deposits. And eventually people had this vast accumulation of, of Terra, the coins that they wanted to cash out and say, oh, I'm going to get dollars now. And then the value of the Terra just dropped into nothingness. Well, the interest rate increase, um, I don't think that's going to affect the domestic demand for the currency so much as international demand for the currency, because of all the things that you can talk about is driving these international capital flows that then drive exchange rates. There's many, many factors, all right? So I go through all this uh, for my poor students in my class, but the one that seems to be an anchor, the one that's the most common driver of currency prices, and it doesn't mean it's, you know, 90% of the market, nor, you know, 90% of the time, is interest rates that interest rates are a real powerful force in very quickly attracting financial capital into a particular currency. And so 
I, I guess, unlike NPR, would have viewed this as an incentive for people not in Russia to not cash in their rubles. Uh, and it's very effective. You know, and, and here's the thing, too. And, and you, you, you raise a good point with, with you know, sort of the long run impact. But they're not worried about the long run impact. They're worried about the short run. And, and here's the thing. Now, I talk about this in, in, in class. I'll draw a, a positively sloped line and sort of mark a point halfway and say this. Let's say this is how the currency has been appreciating uh, so far. And you bought at this point right here. You know, so halfway up the line. But you also think the currency is overvalued. But you're still going to buy it because as long as you, know, it, you can play the game, it's like a game of musical chairs. Keynes talks about the general theory. It's like a game. And this is a horror. If people are listening or unfamiliar with the game, it's a way we teach children about disappointment. Um, we get like a bunch of first graders and uh, let's say five of them. We put four chairs out and we play music and they walk around the chairs until the music stops. And then everyone has to sit down. But there's only four chairs and five kids. And so one kid is out of the game. So then they take a chair away and they keep doing this until there's only one kid left. Everyone knows the game. Everyone knows somebody's going to lose. I just don't want it to be me. So when you see the 20% interest rate on the ruble and you think, okay, this is going to appreciate. All right. So I'm going to hold on to the rubles. Although I don't think in the long run, this is going to hold up. As long as I hold my finger over the sell key, I can play this game for a while. And I don't need to sell right at the turn. Uh, of the currency. I just need to sell before it passes the point at which I bought it, the price at which I mm -hmm. bought it. And, you know, it, and so that's what you're going to do uh, internationally. You're going to say, well, all right, I don't know what the long-term impact is going to be, but in the short run, I think the euro is going to, or sorry, the ruble is going to continue to go up. So even if I'm doubtful that it's going to continue to do that in the future. So I guess that the split I'm making here is I think the ultimate demand for the currency, the primary demand for the currency is really coming from the financial sector and not from the people who are ultimately going to use it to buy goods and services because it's a big casino uh, is what it is. And yeah, I mean, I think it was a very, was, that, that was, you know, I, I told you before I came on here, I hadn't really paid close attention to what the ruble had done. I was still, uh, by the way, I'm, I just finished my second term as department chair and never have to ever do it again. Um, and so I'm very happy. That was only, yeah, thank you. That was only May 31st. So up until then, I was still dealing with things like uh, a student is complaining about their grade in this professor's class and, you know, please fill out this form and how's our budget doing. Uh, things that are mind-numbingly boring, but I had to get them done. Um, and I wouldn't pay much attention, except for one thing. One thing that jumped out at me when I you know, was glancing through all this stuff about the ruble was the 20% interest rate. And I thought, well, that was a smart thing to do on their part because they just convinced all the international people holding rubles to keep holding on to them, even if they think in the long run that's not going to hold up. They can play the game in the short run and make money, and it will. it's an effective strategy. Do you think they, they know that it's – do you think uh, Russia knows that sort of hiking – the rates this high is a, is a short-term strategy that's, that's, that could be destabilizing if they try to maintain this for very much longer. Yeah. Yeah, probably so. I, I also figure they feel like, well, but what choice have we got? You know? Uh, and so you yeah. know, um, maybe all the other capital controls they put in would have been sufficient, but, uh, but boy, that's a quick and easy one, the interest rate going up. And, and you know, they're, of course, this whole time, the impression has been they thought this was going to be a quick and dirty thing, the war uh, over with. But in the short run, they, I don't think they had much choice, even if they yeah. knew in the long run it wasn't going to pay off. Yeah, it seems like a lot of countries, many countries are end up doing this 
what should be a short term strategy for a very long time. And, yeah. That, yeah. and that, that, to me, that that seems like like a mistake. I have a, an article where I talk about sort of what's been going on in, in Turkey, and I sort of you know, analyze sort of the incentive relationships created by that, you know, so for the last 20 years or so, Turkey has had lending and deposit rates that are uh, eight to 12% higher in lira than they have been in either dollars or, or euros. And then yeah. this, this, this long-term steady state of having this sort of huge disadvantage to borrowing in lira has some right. very negative consequences that I think have contributed to what we're seeing right now. But it seems like they, they got into this short-term strategy and they've been trying to get out, but there's been a lot of opposition yes. and a lot of hiccups along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what happens is that you put this strategy in and then those who are benefiting from the strategy and, and usually the, the pain of changing a strategy is, you know, concentrated. Whereas the benefit may be spread out over many, many people. It may be a small benefit for many, many people, but a big cost for a very few people. And the very few people are therefore going to be the ones, you know, banging on the door in Ankara saying, you know, you can't do this. And so that makes it very difficult. I was just, uh, I have a class where I talk about current economic controversies, where I talk about the debt and the deficit, of course, but we're doing healthcare. And apparently in Japan, I was watching, a, a, I think, a frontline video on this. I don't remember what the, maybe it, would, it wasn't a CAT scan, but it was something like that. They have set the prices for everything in Japan that the government has for all the procedures. And they've made it way too cheap, one of these procedures. It's become much more expensive, but they can't move it because it is so popular. Even though it is not necessarily medically all that useful, and I can't, I don't think it was CAT scans, but it was something like that, that the Japanese people won't put up with changing the price on that. So yeah, once you do something like that, it's really hard to pull back, especially if you're in a democracy where you need to, you know, you have an election to win. What is harder, trying to build a sort of cold money economy or trying to kick the IMF out of a hot money economy? Hmm. I, I guess it would depend a lot on the particular country. Uh, and right now, people have another choice. They can turn to China uh, and say they're going to come in and build some railroads and you know the schools for us and so forth, and they can help support us. Um, and what the long-term ramifications are, I, I don't no, there's a lot of negative and positive possibilities, but uh, it would depend on the country, you know, uh, on, on the specific circumstances. Well, for example, like I said, these Southeast Asian countries, they're sort of banding together. They're trying to make that less of a question. We don't need them anymore. And they haven't faced a, a financial crisis type thing. So we don't know exactly how well it would work. Uh, Grable, my initial reaction was, oh, that's a terrible idea. But then as I read on in her article, she was like, this is a great idea. Uh, and she won me over with, they know their problems better than the IMF does, uh, better than the World Bank does. They know the local issues. They know what their problems are going to be. And so assuming that they do you know, a, a fair job of it, they're in a better position to figure out the problems. So, yeah. so I don't know, though, in general. Uh, I, I couldn't say in general. Um, we, were, we were on the topic of sort of... Uh, Sort of building sustainable economies. It, it seems like, you know, one of the big issues there is going to be political buy-in, right? Because people, they know. I mean, presumably they know that you know if we do this sort of slowly and sustainably, it's going to mean less income for for people at the top, at least in the very beginning. You know, mm -hmm. I think 
over time, you know, that could, you know, balance out. I mean, hopefully the goal is that over time people's income would go up as much, but they have to be willing to say, all right, well, it's going to take me much longer and it could mean slightly lower sort of standard of living for, you know, while we're sort of getting everything fixed. Yeah. And of course that goes back to the, I, I mentioned institutionalist economics earlier in thinking about economic development. Gosh, if there's one thing that developing economies tend to have in common, I said, you know, there's big differences between, you know, Latin America, Asia, Africa, is that there's a very few very wealthy people and a whole lot of poor people. And so basically the few very wealthy people are making all the decisions. So, you know, we can't assume that's probably less and less true in, in our Western democracies anyway, but that, you know, that the decision-making is essentially being done by the average person. Um, it's not, it, it's, I mean, in Latin America, who's in charge? Uh, basically, Spanish and Portuguese immigrants. And, you know, who's not in charge? Incas, Aztecs, Mayans. I mean, they're the ones mm-hmm. who are getting screwed over. So, so they're really having no voice in this at all. And that's why when you talk about, you know, economic development from the institutionalist perspective, they're like, whoa, 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 let's slow down the talk about capital controls and stuff like that, because all that's irrelevant until we address the, the um, you know, power differentials that are there. Because if we can't do that, then none of the rest of it's going to happen. But if we can do that, then the rest of it becomes you know, manageable. So that, that's kind of the approach that, that, that I would take, too, that in terms of, you know, maybe we could talk about South Korea or, or somewhere like that. But, um, man, the, the problems in Colombia and, you know, Uruguay and so forth, they're not to do with whether or not their um, import barriers are too high or something like that. It's because the you know indigenous peoples are screwed and you know everyone else and the few that can trace their lineage back are not we had a a colleague that just passed away last summer um, not of covid strangely enough but his area was latin american economics and and his 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 wife he was he's actually our only texan in the department but his wife's from panama and he i was talking about this with him uh, and he said there are nightclubs in mexico city where the bouncer is essentially looking at your facial structure, uh, one of the things they're using as a, as a guide, to see whether or not you look more Native American or European, and guess which ones get into the club. So anyway, that, that's that's where I would come from from that. I think the problems are much deeper than politics. So it seems like there is a false dichotomy between politics and economics in some of these developing countries, yes. whereby it's not just about what the plan is, but like, are you able to get the decision makers that would support a plan that would benefit the people at the bottom of the country? Right. I think that's exactly right. That's tough. That's that's the sad part is because you, you need mass movements in order to to make some of this stuff happen. Right. No, that, that, that's exactly what, you know, I said that I had those two articles on development. And then I just kind of like, I don't ever want to look at this again because I don't, I don't ever see it being changed. There was an old TV show, uh, Barney Miller. It was a, a situation comedy. And actually, Melly and I, when we were dating, used to watch that. Uh, we'd go get a pitcher of beer and uh, a chili and, and um, grilled cheese sandwich next to, next to the real UT's campus. The real UT is in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, oh, is it? Don't tell yes. my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine was a university before Texas was a state. Uh, so that's the way I uh, backed that one up. But um, on Barney Miller, there was a Hispanic uh, detective. And at some point, somebody said something about 
you know, when are your people going to move to our side of town? And he's, he mentioned revolution. And yeah, that's what we get. We got ready to, what's our, what's our economic policy to help out, you know, the, the oppressed people in Latin America, it's called revolution. And so it's not really, you know, economics, uh, although perhaps it should be. Well, right. yeah, as Karl Marx and is very much part of economics. Yeah. I think the, the, I guess like the comment I would have there is that you, you do need revolution, but you need the people leading that revolution to have faith in the economic goals of the revolution and to, yeah. and you need the people who they're going to recruit to understand that the current economic situation is not, does not serve them. I, I think that's right. one of the problems that the United States has is that everyone thinks that our current sort of plutocratic, you know, form of economic organization will benefit them in the long run, you know, the, the temporarily embarrassed millionaires thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think in some countries there might, in developing countries, you might have less of a, of a belief in that. I think, I think people in Chile who just elected their leftist president, I think they understood that some of the neoliberal uh, programs that had been in place for the last several years were not benefiting them and would never benefit them. Right. You know, but I think that then the next stage of that is not only do you not, do you know that the current situation doesn't, but doesn't benefit you, but like, can you trust the people who you would get in to fix it, that they right. not only attempt to do the right thing, but have some understanding of how to make that happen. And I think that's right. You know, I think educating the leadership and the members of a progressive sort of political and social movement is a, is a major task that requires a lot of uphill battles to oh, yeah. fight against certain neoliberal myths, which, yeah. Which are coming from the economics discipline. And yeah. so all the advice you're going to receive from economists is not going to be very good advice and you're going to be criticized. Uh, and so, yeah, it becomes very difficult. I, um, well, a, a fellow at the other UT, Jamie Galbraith, um, over in the public policy uh, department, he used to have a conference every two years. Man, it was fantastic. Horribly depressing. We're talking about real world problems from, from post-Keynesian institutionalist MMT perspective. Um, but then to be there with, with, with like-minded people was always kind of, you know, like you come away feeling, you know, thank God there's other people who believe this too. But it might've been, I guess that the second to last one he had, it was, you know, after all the events were done and we're drinking beer at some barbecue place there in Austin. And I said to uh, Jamie Galbraith, you know, what do you think it's going to take to fix the economics discipline? And he said, oh, it's gone. It's gone. There's nothing we can do. It, th there's nothing we can do to fix economics. So what can we do? He said, well, what we're doing right here, which was talking to policymakers. And so the process you're describing of finding a way to, you know, A, make sure that they have the right interests at heart, and then B, know how to do it, is certainly a huge task because we have the entire economics discipline against us, and we're trying to sort of wedge in, which I think MMT has been very effective at doing. You know, we haven't won the war, but my gosh, there's even been battles is, is incredible. But we're going to have to get to the policymakers ourselves. Otherwise, it's not going to happen from the discipline. Yeah, well, that is, I think, a, a great transition into our, in our, into our second topic, which is sort of the distinction between neoliberal, neoclassical, conservative economics on one hand, and then on the other hand, progressive post-Keynesian and MMT economics. Yeah. Um, there was a paper that was heralded by mainstream 
economists everywhere by two authors, uh, Drummitz and Feister, who I believe work for the Reserve Bank of France. Um, yeah, that's right, the Bank right, of France. Right. And they sort of published their findings on what they thought MMT was saying and what they thought mainstream economics was saying. Now, I understand that your primary scholarship is not about sort of the operational claims of, of MMT, but I would love to hear sort of your thoughts on what they got wrong, what they got right and, right. Where, and where they're coming from and how it relates to this conversation we're having about neoliberal assumptions and right. coloring conversations. Yeah. Uh, let me back up a little bit and tell you how I learned about MMT, which is kind of funny. I, um, I've been following post-Keynesian economics since halfway through grad school when I thought to myself, I can't do this. I, I, now, I was at University of Tennessee, which was the headquarters of the Journal of Economic Issues, which is the top institutionalist journal. And by my second or third year, the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics was there. Uh, Paul Davidson had come over. And yet, I never learned any of that in class. What I learned in my core micro and macro classes was all neoclassical. And I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I don't like this. I, I thought it was going to be more like the undergrad. Undergrad in many ways was much more realistic than, than the grad stuff. And then one day I found a copy of a book on my grad school desk called A Guide to Post-Keynesian Economics. I uh, asked whose it was. Nobody claimed it. I said, all right, I'll start reading it. Um, and I thought, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. I'll finish your stupid PhD and then I'll do what I want to do after that. Uh, so I wrote a purely neoclassical dissertation. Um, you know, I learned how to do some things from it, but I never got any publications out of it because I had no no desire to, to push it uh, anymore. It's like, okay, I'm done with that. Now I'm going to do post-Keynesian stuff. So I've been doing that since 1987, just post-Keynesian institutionalist research. And uh, I've known Randy Ray since about that same time. I've known Stephanie Kelton since she was Stephanie Bell. I've known Pavlina Chernova and um, Fidel Kaboob since they were grad students. So I knew all these people, right? And I'm on Facebook one day, uh, met, met you know, with, with some heterodox economics people. And somebody said, it might have been Charles um, uh, over in Dallas. Charles says, uh, how long have you been into MMT? And I was like, what does that stand for? I don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and then he explained it. I was like, oh, I just thought that was like macroeconomics done properly. Um, that's just, you know, how you understand the world. And I didn't know there was a special name for it. So it's kind of funny that I didn't know I was one until, you know, uh, until I read about that or until, mm -hmm. until Charles Hayden said this to me. But to me, it was just an extension of all the post-Keynesian stuff that we've been doing before. And I just didn't realize that, you know, there's a different name for it. So uh, I, I mentioned all that because it's, it's not an area of research interest for me in looking at MMT issues per se. Uh, I do business cycles. That's what I find fascinating. But of course, it, it, it's involved with that, but it's not the same thing. But I've been a supporter uh, since the beginning because I thought, well, yeah, it just makes sense. And so on my on my Cowboy Economist, you know, YouTube station, and on my um, Forbes blog post, I've I've defended it uh, and I've talked about it. But like, um, uh, oh, Scott Fulwiler does some fantastic stuff on the actual operation. So uh, I would not say that I am in any way ignorant of it, uh, but it's not my area of research, especially in terms of, of breaking down, you know, exactly how to, uh, you know. Uh, how the banking system works and so forth within it. Having said that, this article, this meaning of MMT by Drummond and Pfister, there was nothing in there that, that was, you know, that required me to know anything outside of, of what I already knew. And, and let me let me make a couple of preliminary comments about it. Um, first of all, 
just the rhetoric I found fascinating. That, for example, in the opening here, they talk about uh, the so-called modern monetary theory. Why put so-called in there? Why not just say modern monetary theory? Well, the the so-called is clearly an attempt to subtly imply, and perhaps not so subtly, that, yeah, this this so-called theory they've got over there. So there was no need to word it that way. Now, to be fair, I don't know if I've ever done this in a professional article. Well, maybe I have. We will tend to do that to each other. You know, but, but I, I thought, what? You're supposed to be giving us here a, a sort of academic scholarly appraisal of MMT. And the first sentence in your uh, abstract is referring to as the so-called modern monetary theory. Another thing I found interesting was, that in trying to trace it back to its origins, they bring up several times that these theories upon which MMT is based were, for example, here, received very mildly at the time. Okay, so what? I mean, what does it have to do with the underlying utility of this model is that when it first came out, people didn't think much of it. All right. The only reason I can think of bring it up is to, you know, cast even more doubt on the theory. Uh, so I, that, that I think I there's a lot of prestige chasing going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so that was to me, you know, kind of very, very telling throughout the whole thing. Um, but again, maybe we do that to them. I don't know. Maybe you know when we're talking about their so-called theories. Uh, so I, I won't give a plus or a minus to that. The other thing that struck me was that there are so many unstated assumptions here that they are making uh, what they see as damning uh, comments based on unstated premises, which I totally understand. If I'm a Marxist economist writing for another Marxist economist, there's lots of stuff I don't need to say because we both know we already believe it. Or, or maybe even better example, if I'm a, uh, a, a Christian theologian writing for a, a um, you know, Christian journal, I don't have to say, by the way, I'm assuming that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. You, know, you don't have to add that in there because we're assuming it. So, so there's lots of stuff in here that when I read that, I thought to myself, well, you think you're making a huge point, but that's only true if, you know, X, Y, and Z are, are, are also holding that you didn't mention at all. So that was the other, that makes it a little bit harder to read because the things with which I would most disagree are the things they haven't said out loud. I made a bit of a list here. Uh, oh, I, I would love to start with that list of yeah. strange uh, empirical assumptions they're making. Well, uh, let me start off with what they say right about MMT. Because, you know, one of the things you asked me in, in the email was, what do they say right? What do they say that's wrong? They mention, and actually, I, I guess I'm going to get to what you're talking about uh, at the same time. They mention that, that MMT people put more emphasis on fiscal policy than monetary policy. Absolutely, positively, without question, true. But when they say that, that it's with the clear implication that how foolish uh they never then make the argument that monetary policy is more effective they do make a passing statement that i think is totally unfounded which i'll mention here in a moment but yeah you're absolutely right about that they do emphasize fiscal policy above and beyond the in terms of effectiveness monetary policy and they're right um but they don't pursue it because the other people reading this would already agree with them that monetary policy is a big deal see neoclassical economics thinks that prices are really more important than than quantities. Keynes talks about this in the introduction to the general theory. He says, we're used to talking in terms of prices 
and not in terms of quantities because we assume that the quantities are already, for example, at the full employment level and that the only thing that can really have an impact is a change in price that changes the allocation of resources, but still at full employment. So, for example, if we're already at full employment, then, you know, tax cuts, government spending, really not really important to talk about that at all. Ah, but if we change the interest rate, if we change the interest rate and raise it, for example, and this is their theory, not, not ours, we raise the interest rate, it causes people to save more, and that money goes into the financial sector, which causes more investment. So we wouldn't change that we're at full employment still, but we would change that the resources that are being reallocated from consumer goods to investment goods, uh, which is a very Austrian argument too. So you're absolutely right, but they don't really back up the argument. And I'm not blaming them for this because they're writing, writing this for other mainstream economists, but everyone reading this is going to say, oh yeah, that's stupid. Monetary policy is really the big deal. When in fact, I would say, no, it's not. That is why the summer of 2020, we didn't just cut interest rates, which we'd already done practically zero anyway, but we gave everybody money. We gave everybody a $1,200 check because that has an immediate, obvious impact. And of course, we're clearly not at full employment. So the first thing I would say then on that list is that, yes, they're right. MMT puts much more emphasis on fiscal policy than monetary. However, they brought this up as a criticism. And I would say, well, no, it's not. You're right. That is true. But I would not put that on the list of you know, things done wrong. We've got, uh, oh, yeah, the effect of deficits and debt on interest rates. They are correct. The authors are. That MMT views that there's very little to do with, uh, yeah, that the size of the debt and deficit are not going to cause interest rates to skyrocket, right? That, you know, a larger deficit and a larger debt, he said that they say in the article, oh, no, um, they're assuming that the debt and the deficit have no impact on the interest rate. Yeah, you're right. They are assuming that because it's true. But again, they're arguing to a, a crowd that already believes that's not true because they're still thinking the, the, that, the, that the Treasury is borrowing this money and therefore competing with the private sector and therefore driving up interest rates. And yet the, the, the um, empirical evidence is so clear that there's actually an inverse relationship between deficit spending and interest rates. And you know that aside, at the end of the day, if the Fed targets a particular interest rate, it's going to get there. All right. The one thing the Fed can do uh, effectively is target interest rates. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that there is a relationship. So again, what they're getting right, uh, I guess I could say their list of what they get right about MMT is also in their mind, the list of what is wrong with MMT, but for reasons that they don't make clear in the article, because they're already talking to other people that agree with them. They also talk about that MMT folks don't talk about the effect of monetary policy on inflation via the you know quantity theory of money. You're right again, <laughs> but there's a good reason for that, that they don't think there is a relationship. And, and so, you know, and I'll give you a couple more here, but the whole thing is full of stuff like that. Let's see. Oh, get this one. Here was another thing they got right that they also viewed as a criticism. Well, it seems like MMTers don't cite many Nobel laureates. Yep, you're right. And there's another good reason for it. So, I, I, you know, I found that fascinating that everything they got right was to them an indictment. But to me, it was like, well, that's that's because that makes sense. Oh, MMT doesn't include a crowding out mechanism. All right. Which A is not true uh, entirely, but, but it is true by their measure of what they call crowding out. Because, again, this goes back to, in their mind, the Treasury is borrowing from the private sector 
driving up interest rates. And when you drive up interest rates, you therefore cause some private sector uh, activities not to take place. That's the crowding out. You're right. They don't include that because they don't believe that the deficit spending is going to drive up interest rates. But MMT does have a crowding out mechanism. It, you know, you can find Randy Ray talking about this, that once we're at full employment, if we continue to try to stimulate the macro economy via, say, you know, a job program, I don't know how you do that for full employment, but at any rate, to give them the benefit of the doubt, then you're, you're taking resources away from the private sector. But you're taking resources away not because you raised interest rates, but because we use the money that the federal government can you know, create at will to, as we did in World War II, we're going to use that steel to make a Sherman tank and not a car. Right? So the government certainly can take resources away from the private sector, but not in the manner that the, that the neoclassicals uh, imagine. And I've got uh, just two more here. MMT thinks that interest rates are secondary. Yep, you're absolutely right. But we view that as a positive, and they are citing it in their paper. Uh, that, that's one of their criticisms. And the very last thing they say is that, oh, uh, and, and uh, Thomas Pally um, is cited numerous times. Uh, see, this is why I, I just had a, a Facebook exchange with a friend uh, yesterday uh, about something about MMT. And I said, you know, the last thing we need to be doing right now is fighting amongst ourselves when we're under siege. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't agree with everything that has been put forward by some people as falling under the MMT umbrella. It doesn't all, uh, not everyone believes the same thing necessarily. But I don't see the point in bringing it up when we're screwed to start with. Why would we fight amongst ourselves? And yet Thomas Pally, who is a post-Keynesian, I think enjoys attacking MMT. Uh, but anyway, he was cited at numerous points throughout the article. And, and one of, I believe it was him, uh, where they cited him as saying, you know, well, MMTers don't do any formal modeling, and that's a real, you know, real problem right there. No, not in the way that a neoclassical would, because the way they model, it's impossible to show what's really going on. And the simple way to explain that is that the most popular modeling technique in neoclassicism is general equilibrium modeling, a system of simultaneous equations. And so here's the problem with the system of simultaneous equations. They're simultaneous. Everything happens at once. There is no way to take into account a financial sector of, of any level of realism in a system of simultaneous equations because the financial sector is about time. It's about, I'm going to borrow today and repay tomorrow, uh, or I'm going to loan today and get paid back tomorrow. You cannot model the, the changes in levels of debt and income over time when there is no time in your model. Uh, and I, I've got a, an article where I talk about all this. You can find a number of mea culpas from neoclassicals after the financial sector saying, well, we, we often don't even have a financial sector in our model. And if the general public knew this, I, I wonder if they, if they could see these things where they say, well, we don't even include a financial sector. They don't think it's terribly important, and it's impossible to include it in general equilibrium modeling. So I guess the, the thing I would say about that is you're right. We don't build general equilibrium models because they don't work, because they can't possibly portray what's going on here. What we do is stuff more like what Steve Keen did in his 1995 article about um, financial crises, where we do you know simulation models instead. So anyway, that, there's a short – I know you probably have some questions and so forth, but there's just a short – reaction of mine, the things that they listed that were right, they viewed these implicitly for that they expected the, the reader to say, oh, no, when in fact it was like, well, yeah, that's exactly the way we should do it. 
I had some questions that I, that I pre-wrote, but now I, I want to sort of zero in on the last thing you said, which was that simultaneous equations cannot model time, which means they cannot properly account for movements to and from the, the financial sector. I was wondering, is there a, a video, perhaps by an economist who might, I don't know, be a cowboy that, <laughs> sort of, uh, that goes into detail, uses, you know, charts and equations and diagrams to sort of really explain why this, this is a problem? I don't know if I've ever done that or not. My, you know, here's the funny thing. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you had I heard a couple of my other podcasts. I haven't ever heard any of them because I don't want to hear myself speak. So <laughs> and as soon as one's done, I kind of forget what I talked about in that one. So there may be a cowboy economist one. I do know that I have all my lecture note, all my lecture videos. This this happened because of COVID. I, I immediately that spring set about videoing every remaining lecture in all my classes. And then that summer filled in what I hadn't done for uh, in case I got sick or in case a student got sick with COVID and couldn't really, you know, pay attention in class and you didn't see the video. So so my intermediate macro class is out there. And, you know, if somebody wanted to, to watch the videos, then God help them. But of my entire intermediate macro class, they are some if somebody wants to email me uh, at j.harvey at tcu.edu, I can point you to where it is. But uh, I know I talk about it there. I know I talk about the, the modeling issues in my intermediate macroeconomics class. I don't know if the cowboy economist has mentioned it even in passing, but I got to tell you, I'm itching to do one because I haven't done one in so long. And I, I promise people, okay, now that I'm not department chair, I'll do some more. Uh, maybe that'd be a good topic to cover. I think it would be an excellent topic. And uh, occasionally, uh, you know, you'll see interactions with people on, online or, you know, in these sort of back and forth discussion type papers in which people will say MMP doesn't have a model. And of course, you know, Sam Levy or Stephanie Kelton or Pavlina Chichenova will, will pick, will chime in and say, actually, no, we have all these models. Right. And one of the responses I've seen was that those don't count because they don't give us the information that we expect to be seeing from a model, which is... right. You know, I'm not even going to say what I think it is. I want to know what you think they think a proper model is supposed to be telling you. Well, um, you know, it's funny this topic uh, came up. In fact, I just finished a podcast with Jeff, I guess, a couple of weeks ago where this was one of the topics he wanted to talk about. I guess in 2020, uh, Yeva Nersisian and uh, Randy Ray wanted to know if I would write a piece for a book they were doing that was about the effect of exchange rates or effect of MMT policies on exchange rates. And they wanted this written for the general public. I said, sure. So I, I sat down and did that. But then shortly after that, I got an email from, from an MMT group in Scotland that was putting together a book, the uh, Gower Initiative. And they said, will you do, they basically described the same thing, but with lots of math so that we can show a neoclassical, hey, we got a model. So I did that. And I used all general equilibrium stuff, which I would not normally do, except that I was supposed to be, you know, showing this this model. It, it was supposed to be in part to say, look, we do know how to do this. Uh, we just aren't going to do it, you know, the the, um, the the way you expect, except this time. All right. So, and, and it's funny, Jeff asked, well, did you feel like that was kind of a total waste of time? And I said, actually, no. Uh, because I'll tell you what I like from a model, and, and here, here's a problem of self-selection. Even if you're not a mainstream economist and you're, you know, you got a PhD in economics, one of the things that probably attracted you 
was the formal modeling part. Uh, my first major was physics, um, which turned out to be god awful boring. Uh, so then I switched to political science, which I enjoyed, but I missed the structure that physics forced on your thinking. And so to me, the modeling technique, whether you do the neoclassical way or not, and I'll, I'll get into your specific question in just a second, but uh, it forces you to make explicit things that in, in, a, in a manner more clear than if we were sitting in a bar somewhere talking about it. You know, well, I think that uh, people don't like higher prices or really how much. I mean, let, let's lay out a parameter here. Let, let's put in an equation and say quantity demanded is a function of and now we can screw around with the variables that indicate how much they dislike changes in prices to get a sense of, just like we were talking about earlier, I need to know the numbers. I need to know well, if, if I cause my currency value to go down, what impact does that have elsewhere? And without a, a formal model, it's hard to think those issues through. So they are expecting equations with variables and parameters on, on them. But it turns out there's more than one way to do that. And, and as a matter of fact, I said to Jeff as this topic came up that there's a fantastic quote from, from Keynes that really sums up how we should use these models. And uh, actually, as, as I'm sure is true of everyone in the world, I have a subdirectory with many of Keynes' writings in it. So let me just find that real quick. And where's the general theory? I found it. All right. So this is in Keynes' general theory. And he says, this is such a wonderful summary for just how to do economic research to start with. The object of our analysis is not to provide a machine or a method of blind manipulation, which will furnish an infallible answer, but to provide ourselves with an organized and orderly method of thinking out particular problems. And after we've reached a provisional conclusion by isolating the complicating factors one by one, we then go back on ourselves and allow, as well as we can, for the probable interactions of the factors amongst themselves. This is the nature of economic thinking, right? And now he's about to attack neoclassicism. Any other way of applying our formal principles of thought will lead us into error. It is the great fault of symbolic pseudo-mathematical methods of formalizing a system of economic analysis that they expressly assume strict independence between factors involved and lose all their cogency and authority at this hypothesis is disallowed and goes on from there. But, but his point being, and Keynes was a brilliant mathematician, and he says, yeah, that gives us a place to start. You know, we, we put all this together and we allow as best we can for how the system works. And then, you know, oh, okay, if the exchange rate goes up by this much, then imports will go you know, down by this much. But now stop and think, okay, now wait a minute though. This might interact with this and this might interact with this. And, and so I find it, I find the formal modeling it's like the dark side of the force in some ways. It's fun. It's fun to sit there and build these models and so forth. And I can see how easy it is for neoclassicals to get carried away and think, well, now I'm doing economics. You know, this is it. And if you're not doing this, it's not economics. But it shouldn't be the end. Uh, it should be a way of thinking through certain issues. And particularly, the general equilibrium method is not a very useful way of, well, it, it is for some problems. You, you need to adjust your method to the problem at hand. But no, we have models that they don't recognize as models. They don't see them as models. And that has been a weakness. Not that we should do something different, but it does open us up for criticism, valid or not. It's like I said, all these things I listed that they said that were true about MMT were also perfectly okay by me. So I don't know if that 
helps to answer the question. Here's my personal confusion is I don't know how much I'm attracted to the method simply because I felt that way to start with. And that's why I went to economics because I enjoyed the formal modeling. And I don't know if it's that I have a bias towards it or if it really is useful. I can't separate those two. I think it's really useful, um, but I could be wrong. I, I, I think it, it's, it's probably useful to the extent that, well, I guess there's two things, right? You have to have the correct goals in mind and you, then you have to have the correct assumptions about how to achieve those goals. And right. that sort of leads me to a question that I, I, in mainstream economic models that look at inflation, they seem to be using GDP as a proxy for the amount of resources in a country. And to me, this seems misguided for a number of reasons, but I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on first, whether or not that is actually what they're doing. They're using GDP as a proxy for re for real resources. And then second, what, what are the problems with that? If there are any. Yeah. I guess I guess you could take that, you know, because technically GDP is the final goods and services produced. But then, of course, those came from the real resources. Those were produced using the real resources. And so, you know, if we're assuming full employment of all resources, then, yeah, that, that's kind of a proxy for that. And I, I guess my my biggest problems, you mean, particularly on the inflation front? Right. Uh, yeah. When, when they yeah. when they talk about, you know, debt to GDP exceeding one thing or the other um, and then, uh, you know, and then that being like the cause of inflation. like Right. Right. Um, I have many problems with their interpretation of inflation. The, the first and foremost being that they always assume it's bad uh, and, and it's not. I mean, inflation can be the side effect of a very positive social process. If we suddenly start paying McDonald's employees, you know, $15, $20 an hour, the price of a Big Mac is going to go up. All right. No two ways about it. But then uh, I've been using this example. It's quite possible that the Emancipation Proclamation made cotton more expensive, but that wasn't the point. The point was a social issue. So, yes, if we are oppressing a people, whether, you know, legally or, or, or economically, then no longer oppressing them is expensive to those of us who are benefiting from their oppression. Uh, if, if, you know, wages go up for, for, for yard work, then I'm probably going to have to pay more for the person who cuts our grass every week. Uh, and, um, but that's the cost of living in a civilized society. So all inflation is not bad. However, inflation does usually redistribute income. And if it's redistributing from the people who are buying Big Macs to the people who are working there, I'm okay with that. All right? That's, you know, there are other goals, but they treat all inflation. You know, like right now, oh, no, the labor market's tight. That might cause wages to go up. That's okay. Both political parties have talked about the fact that the middle class is disappearing. You know how we fix that? Higher wages is how we fix that. Mm -hmm. And yet we're acting like any inflation is a net loss, and it is not. So the, the, the inflation caused by high levels of demand is going to be is going to be a a uh, redistribution and and not a net loss for the society and b the inflation caused by rising demand also sends and I'm going to sound like an Austrian here also sends useful signals to entrepreneurs 
if the demand for bricks is going up, right? Do we throw the economy into recession because of that? Because it's going to cause the price of bricks to go up, which will cause the price of houses to go up, which I'm sure is part of the CPI. And so it's going to cause CPI to go up. So do we throw the economy into recession or do we allow that to happen so that manufacturers of bricks get the signal, oh, people want more bricks and they produce more bricks and people who are not, not in the brick industry to start with think to themselves, oh, uh, we should get into the brick industry. It's quite profitable because that's what consumers wanted. They wanted more bricks. At the beginning of COVID, the, the cost of medical alcohol skyrocketed. I know because I brought a 3D printer then and you could hardly get, and I needed alcohol to clean it out and you could hardly get any alcohol anywhere. So we could have thrown the economy into an even deeper recession and stopped the price of medical alcohol going up, or we could have done what we did, allow the price to go up and cause other industries, for example, people who made whiskey were just making alcohol at that point for, for you know, hospitals. That's what we want. Now there may be social reasons to help people with those rising costs. And that's certainly fine, but you don't throw the economy into recession. You don't need to raise taxes because of inflation. In fact, that never helps, right? The other kind of inflation is caused by things like the invasion of Ukraine. And that sure as hell not gonna be stopped by causing a, a decline in the level of economic activity. Oh no, the price of food is going up. I know how to stop that. Make sure people have less money which technically does quote unquote solve it because the price doesn't go up as much because people don't have enough money to buy food, but it doesn't solve the real problem. Uh, and so their whole approach to inflation, that it is, it is always a net loss to society that must be addressed by throwing the economy into recession. The only kind of inflation that would affect is inflation that's the side effect of a good thing, so leave it alone. And the, the, the inflation that's the side effect of a bad thing, like invading you know, the invasion of Ukraine, is not helped by throwing the economy into recession. So, so I have a lot of, of big problems with the neoclassical approach to inflation, but they really center on, on their definition of inflation, I guess, and their conception. So you, we've talked a lot about sort of inflation being not always the same in terms of like how it's composed, in terms of like it could be the result of good things and it could have good effects as well. Uh, you gave the example of, you know, if the price of food goes up, that could be a good thing if it induces more food production. What about the, the flip side? What about when the price of something goes up that won't necessarily induce more production, but we don't necessarily care because that's not what our goals are? For example, what if, um, you know, if the price of, of diamond jewelry right. goes up right. for whatever reason, Technically, that could have some impact on the CPI, but is it something that we should care about, either from yeah. a policy perspective or when sort of you know modeling the uh, you know the impacts of various events on inflation as a whole? Right. No, we we, we should not care less. I mean that you know. And in fact, I was showing my class last semester this. The latest inflation figures that come out. It's like let's look at the actual categories. Let's not just look at the final number. Let's look at the breakdown of all the individual numbers. And most of it was being driven by food and by um, uh, fuel prices. Okay, this makes sense. All right. And, and so what do we do about it? Well, nothing that the Fed currently has in their you know, set of, of standard uh, procedures in any way addresses those. And if we were to discover that the prices were actually going up, being driven by a rise in the price of diamonds, then we don't care at all. All right, so you have to break it down by sector 
and see which sectors are gaining, which sectors are losing, which sectors are the origin of the inflation. But they treat all the same, and it's all bad, and including the one that could help us, you know, stop the destruction of the middle class. That's way up there. You know? Thank you.